calling all podcasters, musicians, vloggers, and reporters, and everyone else who wants crystal clear recording that's super portable. The Shure Motive family of microphones makes studio quality audio that's as simple as plug and play. Many of the world's top podcasters rely on Shure, and with a Motive line of iOS and USB microphones, portability is now your friend. Imagine being able to get great audio quickly and easily from your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply visit Shure.com slash Motive to start getting great audio for your content now. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com forward slash M-O-T-I-V. Good evening, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Barbara Steele, the icy eyes of death, only here on Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. So, good evening, and welcome to uh, the third show, I believe, in the fifth season of Weird Seasons Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell. It's the fourth show, actually. Oh, is it really? No. It's the third. I thought it was the fourth. With and, Jerry Cotton, Ken Russell. And then this is Barbara Steele now. No, it's another one. We recorded three times, but there's only two shows that came of that. Oh, well, I have to look. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> uh, drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight... How does a nice British girl out of Liverpool wind up as the figurehead of Italian horror cinema? One of thousands of feckless art school attendees during the beatnik era that preceded and prefigured the sweeping cultural change of the British invasion and subsequent hippie movement, Barbara Steele's striking at severe looks landed her roles in several classic Italian films, even catching the eye of Federico Fellini himself, while creating an all-too-brief series of gothic horror efforts that all but define the genre. Working alongside the now-much-faded likes of Mario Bava, Riccardo Freda, Antonio Margariti, and Sergio Carbucci, Steele all but personified the Italian mala feminina, the most deadly of femme fatales, because in the right hands, the Steele anti-heroine embodied the inescapable allure of the Thanateros, the morbid obsession, even passion and longing for the dissolution into the other, most pointedly in the finality of death. Parlaying her Italian fame into roles for Roger Corman, Michael Reeves, Vernon Sewell, Joel Dante, and David Cronenberg, not to mention an abortive starring role against none other than Elvis Presley, Steele would find work in horror and cult cinema throughout the 60s and 70s, eventually settling into a role as co-producer and occasional on-screen presence for the inimitable Dan Curtis, even landing a production gig on, of all things, Queer Eye. So, join us as we wend our way through the funereal gothicism and necrophilic allure of Barbara Steele, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. So, uh, it's been a strange week, strange evening. For those uh, who aren't aware, we did pre-record some of these shows, and this one here is coming the day after April Fool's, and we all got an April Fool's gift up here in the Northeast, uh, because it snowed today. Uh, so, after digging our way out this morning, which you can't even tell there's snow anymore, it just kind of melted away, here we are for your uh, oral delectation, speaking Barbara Steele. So, uh, how are you doing, Lois? I, I, I'm still smiling about the word feckless. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, uh, no, it would have been great if we did the show yesterday, but things happen. It's okay. It's the wonderful world of podcast radio. 
Right. Because uh, one thing I was hung up on is, you know, like uh, uh, it was Easter yesterday for some people, yes. a lot of people. And, you know, Jesus rose from the grave. And Barbara Steele is one of the women who rose from the dead so many times. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but it's a day later, so it doesn't matter. But she'll be back in two more days. So, um, oh, yeah, he rose from the dead after three days, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, no, uh, yeah, it's a good intro. Um, Barbara Steele. Now, she's a, a tricky character. She did, as you as you mentioned, you know, uh, appearances in not a lot of movies. No. But some very important movies and some very influential movies and movies a lot of us saw as kids throughout the years. I hear that cork turning. Um, but she's a, a really interesting character because she's she's someone who can come across as cold and different. Yes. And yet and yet has this quality that's almost undefinable. It's it's you know, we we've discussed other shows in other shows about uh, Italian or British actresses that were hot, sexy and had this aura and what that did for their careers and how they came across, even in our Golden Age show, you know, who was hot, who was not. And she had a very unique persona. And in and, and researching this, uh, there was there was a lot of things I came across. Some people said she was difficult. And, yes. and we'll, I guess we'll drop that over the, over the time. I met her two or three times over the years. Uh, personally, yes, in human body person. And uh, both times she was cold and indifferent. She's sort of like, huh? Yeah, okay. Um, well, when I met her, she was stone drunk at 10 in the morning, kids. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she was wow. passed out on the table. I'm like, okay. She managed to sign my uh, picture of her, which was from the Black Sunday era, but good Lord. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Uh, one of the few times Jim Lucas had come out east uh, and actually left the house, um, <laughs> He he was with Barbara and and uh, not Lynn Lowry, uh, the other one uh, who was in the Velvet Underground. Help me out. She oh, was Nico. Here. No, not in the Velvet, but dancing with them. Uh, Rock and Roll High School. Uh, PJ Souls. Oh, uh, Warrenoff. Warrenoff. Mary Warrenoff. Right. Thank you. She she was with Mary Warrenoff. They did a Q and A with Tim Lucas, and I took some photos and. So Barbara signed a couple of pictures for me in a Black Sunday calendar. I still have. And then she was kind of off the thing, just doing uh, audio tracks for DVDs and Blu-rays over the years. And she showed up at a show about two years ago, I would say, and she was same. <laughs> and then I saw her again, and she was like the same. You know, she's uh, she'll listen to you. Yeah, I'll give her credit for that. But I, it's almost like that's her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's her. Um, so now, before she appeared in these movies we all like so much, she did uh, show up. Uh, yes, she was born actually near Liverpool, Cheshire, England. Mm-hmm. Birkenhead, Cheshire. You know, England. They have like five names for a town. And she did TV like everybody else. Uh, she was in Danger Man. Precursor to Secret Agent Man. True. Patrick. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick McGowan. McGowan. I actually think it's his better series, but I know everybody thinks The Prisoner, so. 
Oh, it's good. It's good. I mean, the prisoner. Yeah, but the prisoner's hard. I mean, uh, I don't know. Did we ever? We probably discussed that briefly. We were talking about it when we did some of those cult TV shows, British cult TV, mm-hmm. and also when we mentioned the Avengers. He came oh. up, but we did not delve into Danger Man. Now, yeah, that's probably something to consider one day. You know, the very interesting career of Patrick McGowan. Oh yes. Because you know you got Danger Man, Secret Agent Man, you got lots of stuff. And then you got the prisoner. And then he does that hippie film there with Richie Havens in it. What was that thing? Uh, Catch. Uh, Catch my soul. Catch my soul. Yes. Where he was apparently uh, that, drunk on the set the entire time. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, it's a very interesting thing. Yes, it is. I, and you mentioned uh, Elvis Presley, Flaming Star. Yeah, she got replaced on that. Yeah, she got into some kind of disagreement with the director uh, on that film. I think it was Don Siegel. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if anybody really knows that except for those who were there. But nonetheless, she was in a, you know, for an Elvis movie. You know, I love Elvis movies. You know how they are. They're kind of cheesy. But a fairly major role. I mean, she was up there for uh, basically the woman that ran the ranch that Elvis was supposed to fall for. You know, um, I keep thinking of Tickle Me, which is basically the same thing with Sillier. Uh, but nonetheless, you got a more or less leading role. Yes, effectively, you're a little more than a sidekick in an Elvis film. But nonetheless, for a female role at that time in in history and in an Elvis film, it was pretty big stuff. So, you know, they pissed the guy off enough to get booted off and replaced. It's pretty bad. Well, well since Barbara Eaton was a blonde at the time, or yes. a dyed blonde, uh <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, does the carpet match the curtains? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's possible. It's possible. You know, Don Siegel wanted her to dye her hair, and then you know the way she, because the the two or three movies where a Barbara Steele plays dual roles, when she was she did it quite quite often. Yes. Um, she used the other character, or the doppelganger, or the sister, or whatever. She usually played her as a blonde, be easier right. for us yokels to tell them apart, right? And and she just, I don't know, her as a blonde is so strange. Yeah, she doesn't look right at all. Yeah, so that might have been one of the issues. You know, it could have been, he was like, can you tone down your performance? And she's like, no. And, but, yeah, Flaming Star, lots, lots of British, you know, small, minor things, some uncredited before the big movie which was Black Sunday. Yes. So coming right off of this debacle in 1960, more or less, with uh, Elvis, uh, she winds up going over to Italy, which, you know, it may have been part of the contract. Like, okay, you did something wrong. Let me boot you over there. Like in the old days with the store system, they used to have something mm-hmm. where if a star, even big names, you know, Gable or whatever, uh, Lauren Bacall, they made a film that didn't do well enough or they had some sort of a minor scandal in the tabloids or whatever, the company that had their contract, you know, MGM or whatever, would get right. kind of pissed off at them and say, okay, well, it's a minor punishment. Now you have to go make this crappy movie some for, you know, William Bodine at, uh, you know, Monogram Pictures or whatever the hell. And the, these people that were considering themselves A-list would be like, oh, come on, really? That's like a Z-list director. This is crap. Yeah, shut up. Get over there and do it. And they would have to do this thing for whatever it was. 
and then come back and you know go back on the good graces of the company, if you will. And there you go. So it may have related to that. It may have been she was just there on vacation. I don't know the specifics of why she was in Italy. Nonetheless, uh, she went to Italy and she wound up in this film with Mario Bava, which kind of kicked off the rest of her career, uh, at least for a long time. So is there any background you want to give on this one before I kind of go into you know, my little notes here? Well, um, well, this is around the time that one of the few things I found was uh, Baba, who never anybody ever really ever said anything negative about. Right. There's something I found here where Baba said, well, she was hard to work with. <laughs> <laughs> so it all kind of ties back, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't know if this is a quote from a uh, DVD audio commentary or from a printed interview. And uh, Steele have recalled working on Black Sunday. Lord alone knows I was difficult enough. I didn't like my fangs. I had them changed three times. I loathed my wig. I changed that four times. I couldn't understand the diet. I certainly did not want to allow them to tear open my dress and expose my breasts. So they got a double. But I didn't like that. So I ended up exposing my breasts. You know, this is going on. So... <laughs> You get the idea, real diva. Uh, uh, a diva, yeah, sort of. But she was, I believe she was very young. Yes, she was. So, uh, uh, 18, 19, so... Yeah, actually a little too young in some ways. So what I said from rewatching this fairly recently, it was actually before we started uh, speaking about the show uh, coming back again. So it was kind of synchronicity. I had just gone through a phase of, you know what, let me go rewatch all my Italian gothics. And I spent like a week or two doing that. Uh right. So, Black Sunday is uh, an early Mario Bava opus, and still one of his best. Uh, we talked about it probably in more detail about the plot itself on our Mario Bava show, those of you who want to dig back into that. The minimalist sets were, as ever with Bava, cleverly filmed to create an unshakable illusion of space and scope, the castle and tomb sets in particular, and I love that interest in the fireplace, which was the staple of films like The Black Sleep a few decades prior. The black and white filming lends an unusual gothicism and gravitas to the proceedings, and Steele is young and pretty in her dual role. Uh, you can see why the Italians loved her look. She was, during this decade at least, quite Italian-looking. And he gives the lady plenty of screen time, which was sadly not always the case in her career going forward, maybe because she was so difficult to deal with. <laughs> there is a bit of a feel of the UK classic City of the Dead, a bit of the more traditionally gothic costume epic, talking about everything from Dracula through the Italian gothics that more or less kicked off, to the Mexican horrors of around the same era. And it was gruesome for its day. I mean, it inspired scenes and settings for many a gothic car to come internationally, uh, twice with Roland and the Starlet Bridget High in films like The Italian Slaughter and the Vampires, The German Cave of the Living Dead, and many a Mexican K. Gordon Murray import horror. And in terms of uh, Roland, we're thinking things like Fascination and uh, Grapes of Death. Uh, he had some scenes that he stole directly from themes with her in this film. While Bava is more deservedly associated with his wild use of color gels in his later pictures, this one remains not only one of his greats, but one of the greatest Italian gothics per se. Really nothing much else to say about that we didn't already touch on. Uh, most people know that there were two edits of this and two scores. Uh, there was a Les Baxter score for the American uh, version, which was pretty effective, actually, just like his one for Baron Blood. And then there was the original one, which was, uh, I think it was uh, Roberto Nicolosi or something, which was more florid. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, much more florid, and, you know, whether it works better or not is down to your own personal taste, but that's about all I have to say on this one that we didn't already cover, so uh, how about you? Uh, well, for anybody that did not listen to our Baba show, and we, we did do Baba show, 
Um, yeah, she's striking uh, the way she first appears as Kaja. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the two dogs in this fog and shrouded overlook near a cemetery and then her re-emergence or rebirth as Aja right. um, it's very weird freaky I think he, he keyed into if she was difficult or not that's another story but he keyed into her look yes. she had a very her hair was very dark her eyebrows were dark she had aquiline nose so she had a particular look. And very expressive eyes. Very expressive eyes. She had she had sort of very wide eyes, sort of like Jackie Chan post-surgery. You know, like very, very <laughs> big, wide eyes. Uh, there was a joke there. Pretty much. But, no, she did have very these very expressive eyes, uh, which is odd. He knew this because this is one of the things when, you know, the conscious uh, – Aja, Aja, the reemergence of the dead witch as the body recomposes in the coffin. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to get into too, too many details why, how this happened. Um, the eyes fill up. Yes. You know, the fluid, then the orbs show, the wider the eye. But it's really a freaky thing. It's re- There's a lot of freaky touches. This is a very seminal film and I agree with you in many many aspects uh, the Spanish horror films I think it was Frederick Curiel or Federico Curiel who did a lot of those and uh, uh, John Lowell and Moxie of all people City of the Dead you know uh, Horror Hotel I mean a lot of things I'm sure Bava saw all these things and the feeling of all this stuff is just heavy in the atmosphere yeah and yet, what he brings to it is the Italian bombast, which, you know, from a nation known for opera and, and its uh, sign language, if you will, the gesticulations being part of speech, mm. uh, just, you know, everyday speech, this is not to be unexpected. But it also brought, which you'll see later, especially with the Freda films, an undercurrent of decadence that you really didn't get outside of, right. you know, Jess Franco, you know, who was coming up around the same time. Uh, this was not normal for the era. He really kind of threw everything into it and more. And while he did have forebears that he was pulling from to some degree, like City of the Dead, for example, uh, it really kind of was a trendsetter. It came out of nowhere, more or less. Like, whoa, what the hell was that? And everybody started, you know, the old head snapped to, like, where did that car just go? And uh, sort of followed suit, as we will see. Uh, and it, it definitely put Barbara Steele on the map. Yes. Um, and it led to surprisingly her bouncing back over here yes. to the U.S. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened because all of a sudden, who starts paying attention to this? But Roger Corman. Uh, now, a lot of people really love Corman, and he certainly did a lot for the independent film industry through the years, through the '60s and '70s, and even into the '80s. And I enjoy a lot of those films that came out of his workshop, and a lot of the directors that came from there. But uh, some of these things, going back to watch the Corman films, some of them work, and some of them are pretty damn stodgy. And this one here, I said, this is a pit in the pendulum, which he pulled mm-hmm. her back for. Uh, and I wanted to say, 
it was the first and worst of the Corman Poe's, but it's actually the second of them. Uh, but it's still pretty much the most boring of the bunch. Steele's barely in the film as a shadow figure and a quick flashback until the end of the film, where she turns up to do the sort of thing she'd become famous for in the Italian Gothics, you know, the scheming, cheating couple out to cuckold and get rid of the rich husband. The leads are dull, the story is super basic but seems to drag on forever, and it's kind of hard to take Vincent Price's hammy famous. I mean, I liked him as a kid, but I haven't been crazy about him since my teens, and much less so in recent airings. It's just like, God, this guy is so flaming, and, it, and not like in a fun way, it's just like, this guy's ridiculous. It's like a comic, um, it's almost like he's sending it up rather than playing the part and just throwing something into it. Like we talked last time about uh, the Jerry Cotton films and uh, Horse Frank and how good he was, whether he was or not, at playing this sort of overly effeminate, if not gay, baddie. Uh, with all the touches of you know sinisterness and uh, you know quirkiness that you would associate with something like that, you know that guy really played it well. Vincent Price is just I don't know it's like a joke. It's like watching you know Cesar Romero as the Joker. You know you're like Woo! he's just sending the whole damn thing up, and that's what I get out of Vincent Price. I can't even watching something like what's probably his best film, unless you're going back to like the film noirs like Laura. Which was also Italian, which was uh, was the one that became I Am Legend, but they call it something else. Last Man on Earth. Oh, uh, I love that. Yeah, great yeah. film, right? And he's fairly serious in that one. But even there, it's like I don't know. He just doesn't fit. He doesn't. He doesn't work for me. I mean, again, I used to love him when I was young. Maybe that's a thing you got to be really kind of uh, indiscriminate and you know loving the whole American camp everything up, send it up kind of thing. Uh, right. But just didn't work for me. So what happens here is made it all together, all the stuff I was talking about, a very 1950s feeling, even though it's the early 60s, sexless and blunt American costumer. The whole thing just kind of plods. I mean, it'll take the Italians to do this sort of film right, and they've already gotten started by 1961. So, um, what's your take on this one? Uh, oddly enough, uh, a film, I think it was made a few years later, Russ Jones' Dungeons of Harrow. Yes, is is akin to this. There's a feeling that if Corman could have tapped into something darker, a more macabre, that was a better film, been, right? Yeah, it could have been as more as as memorable as Dungeons of Harrow, which is still to this day creepy. It's like a fifteen dollar budget. I'm kidding, folks. It was a little <laughs> bit more than that. It's, it's cheap, just, yeah, it's cheap, but it's weird. This thing here, um, well. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's Corman's second of his uh, uh, the Poe Poe adaptations. Richard Madsen wrote this, and um, it's a you know it's. What do you do with the story? But but Steele is in it, and she flits in and out. And apparently, um, I found something uh, <laughs> that uh, Corman didn't like her her accent. So actually, the Steele's role in this film, uh, the way we hear her, might have been reduced, too, because apparently she had a really thick cockney. I had no idea. And and they, they redubbed it. They dubbed her. Interesting. And, and so... Because uh, when you I hear her like, in later films, and it's actually, it sounds like her, it's a British girl speaking, and it sounds like what I'm accustomed to her speaking later on, like she did in the 70s in films like Piranha, or in the 90s in Dark Shadow. So I assume that was still her. She didn't really sound that thick, but, you know, again, it was later. So early It was on, later, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, by that time uh, it was worked on. 
Yeah. It's an interesting film. Uh, it has some moments. Uh, the, the best moments, actually, are in the last ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. With the, with the uh, pendulum and the... I think only for this movie, only the era of oppression really... You feel it mm-hmm. toward the end of the movie where you get some semblance. Okay, there's actually madness going on. I can see what's going on. Her character's really ill-defined. But, you know, it's just Roger Corman. Roger didn't even actually find his footing until about two or three years later with what he was doing. It doesn't mean every Roger Corman movie after that was great. But <laughs> uh, these early ones are kind of iffy. Uh, I'm not going to go near Vincent Price. It's always a touchy subject. Yeah, I know people really love him. So. Yeah, I don't dislike him. Uh, you you had some very valid points, though, and... and but what do you do with that? I mean, it's like unique style of acting, perhaps, or <laughs> and you got to remember the too. way he was. Y'all, look at Peter Lorre. Y'all, he's another guy. It's, They're also looking at how many quote-unquote American horror icons do you have? And you say, okay, well, Lugosi. No, he was from you know wherever the hell over in Central Europe, Lugash in uh, Hungary. And, you know, you say Boris Koloff. No, he was English. And Peter Lorre. No, he was German. They found him in Fritz Lang's M. Uh, you know, who the hell was an American horror icon? Basil Rathbone? He was British. So basically you're stuck with, well, I guess we got uh, Vincent Price. Okay. <laughs> so people look at him and say, oh, yes, he's our horror guy. But he's not scary. And he's really kind of, you know, every film he's in, it's almost like he's making fun of it just by being himself. So that's the problem there. Well, Similar time period, she's back over 1962, yes. working with Ricardo Freire, somebody I think is entirely overrated, but that's, yes. another, no, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> people, uh, and you mentioned Tim Lucas before, really, really loves this film and loves Freire, and, you know, I don't mind Freire at all. I mean, he's got some films that I like, but they tend to be later in his career. Horrible Dr. Hitchcock. People say it's one of Freire's best Personally, I prefer his final film, Murder Obsession, uh, and even to some extent, Tragic Ceremony. But this one's certainly lush, and it's sumptuous in its use of color sets and the cinematography. Uh, Steele looks dazzling as the titular character's second wife. Harriet White Madden does her usual creepy-slash-guilty-looking housekeeper shtick, and this time is actually quote-unquote in on it with the, the good doctor. There's an evocative cemetery set. Uh, the castle set is expansive-looking and well-decorated. It looks like a hammer film, with at times a touch more vibrancy than that, and a seedier, more sickly undertone than most hammer films are able to provide. Uh, the whole unspoken, if obvious, necrophilia angle is underplayed, but was really strong for the era's standards. And Steele is very much the Daphne du Maurier slash Anna Radcliffe gothic heroine here, wandering the secret passages of her new home, wide-eyed, candelabra in hand, literally, uh, as thunder and lightning flash down cobweb corridors pursued by the mad woman in the basement, speaking of Dungeon of Harrow. It's all quite Freudian, and it's all pretty damn cheesy, but it looks so good visually as does Steele at this point in her career. So you can forgive it as a slight, if sort of, you know, Saturday afternoon spook show entertainment with a dazzling look to it, even if very little happens in a traditional sense. You know, if you're looking at it as, oh, what's going to happen in this great horror film? It's boring as shit, but it looks nice. So, Well, it's actually a drama. I, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's a gothic drama with these horrific elements. And, and uh, I think, you know, I saw this so many times as a kid on television. I was like, why am I watching this over and over? 
Pleasant Beach Girls was a great movie. I was trying to figure it out. It was only until I got older that I realized like that Hitchcock was a necrophiliac. Yes. Who, you know, liked to drug his wife, play sexual games, and what happens? She dies, and then he He's marries still going after her. Right, yeah. <laughs> so then he has a new bride, which is steel, and then he has an idea. Huh, maybe I can bring my dead wife back to life with her blood. <clears throat> which is the theme that's been used. You know, Franco did it a lot. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's... It's an interesting theme, but I guess when we were, we were, well, I have to speak for myself here. When I was small, when I was younger, and I would see this often late night TV, whether it was horror host shows or just, you know, showing up at 11 o'clock at night for my local programming here on the East Coast, I watched it, but it was slow, and it's, it's evocative of Freda that a lot of his pictures are slow, yeah. and that's why I call it a gothic drama, because there's no real horrific out, the horror is in story. So that's the thing that's going on here. So, I mean, some people really love Freda, and, you know, you can't take that away from anybody. Yeah. You know, somebody really loves something. I just don't see it, and I never did. Yeah. I have to agree with you. Uh, uh, it is much later next to last film. is crazy, and probably because he decided to, let me follow everybody else instead of me trying to lead because nobody's following me. So, <laughs> True. Wait, uh, you know what? I think that's that, that actually that aside I just did might be might have made him a better filmmaker. True. Because as incoherent as murder obsession is, and as weird and strange and messed up, it's got all those elements of all the giallos and the horror and the sexy thrillers and everything, and the supernatural pictures that we liked. And Laura Gemser. And Laura Gemser. That. It winds up being a really decent, strange, fucked up movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas, so so he was following people who probably followed him. It became circular yes, in a way. Very much. So. Um, she Barbara looks good in this film, and it's it's when we start taking notice of her. Unfortunately for her, this led her into this uh, the next three or four or five pictures where she's doing. The same kind of thing. Over and over, yep. Yeah. Leads us to another freighter picture. Well, actually, in the middle of this, I'm not sure if it was before or after or during, uh, she also got pulled aside. It's a film that we won't get into too much, but Fellini's Eight and a Half. It's this sprawling, I mean, just to make this really simple for everybody, if you haven't seen a Fellini film, go out and check. Not just this one out, but, you know, La Dolce Vita, maybe City of Women, Rome. Uh, I mean, the guy is one of a kind whether you like him or not I did not like him for years because he has this weird obsession with clowns and uh, his stuff is very hallucinatory to the point of being surrealist and intensely personal to the point where it alienates viewers where it's like the fuck is this guy going on about but nonetheless his stuff is fascinating for the same reasons and for other reasons he's also a very good filmmaker uh, as just doing a straight piece like um, the one he did uh, Toby Dammit I believe in mm. the uh, Spirits of the Dead uh, which is much more straightforward than most Fellini pictures excellent blows the other two segments away by Vadim and um, I forget who the other guy was in that film but you know as a filmmaker he's very unique and if you're going to try one just one I would say probably 
Uh, I might go for the Dolce Vita, but uh, eight and a half is up there. It's a strange one to take a quick look at. And this one, I called it basically in one line, is sprawling old the self-love in the weird world of filmmaking. And one of many, many, many characters that the director encounters, because he's himself in this film, like he is in a lot of them, uh, and he is directing. And I have no idea for a new film. What should I come up with? And the whole film, as it develops, becomes him looking for an idea to make a film, and it never really finds. Okay, and there you got a film out of this. Uh, anyway, one of the many characters he runs across is uh, a character played by Barbara Steele. And once again, basically just for what Fellini's known for is he liked people with striking looks. So you get Alvaro Vitali, who I really got a kick out of, who made an entire career out of doing you know those Italian sexy comedies with people like uh, Edward Fennec. You know, the school teacher series and things like that, or uh, the, uh, what, what was he, Pierino? The Pierino films. Uh, yes, yes, Pierino. Loads of fun. Basically, you know, a, a kid that never grew up, he's probably in his 30s or whatever the hell, but he's still going to high school, and he's hanging around with all these kids making fart jokes or whatever the hell, and peeping at women's windows. Uh, and on a certain respect, it's kind of creepy, but it's actually kind of goofy and funny, if you know, Italian comedies, especially Italian sex comedies. And Vitali, the only reason that he even had a career is because... Fellini liked people to look weird, and he was this little short plumber, literally, he was a plumber, like Mario in the video games, uh, but without the mustache, and a big bulbous nose, and a kind of hangdog face with jowls, and he's like, oh, I want you in my film, and all of a sudden he's in Amarcord, and he became like a, a good luck totem to Fellini after a while, and started popping up in film after film in bit parts. And that's how this guy made a freaking career. And he had a lot of people like that. Some of them you never heard of. But some of them went on to become somebody or were somebody in the first place, like Barbara Steele. So that's all I'm going to say on that one. Anything you want to say on there? Or? No, I, I, I think you got Fellini. We don't have to do a Fellini show. It's good. In five minutes, <laughs> Fellini. Uh, but, 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 but I do agree. Uh, <laughs> La Dolce Vita is one I would recommend. I actually have that. Uh, and I pull it out every couple of years. The movie! And <laughs> I do think that Toby... <laughs> Took me a minute to get that one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I do think Toby Dammit of Spirits of the Dead, Toby Dammit episode, but Terrence Stamp yes. is incredible. Uh, one of the finest bits of weird, freaky filmmaking. Yes. I think but, it inspired Baba, didn't it? Or was it the reverse? I think it's the reverse. Yeah, okay. no, that came before Toby Dammit. So that's very, very interesting. Um, in, there's your name again, Tim. In Tim Lucas's big-ass book, which <laughs> weighs 47,000 pounds. <laughs> I remember when I got that book, my ex-wife said, you have to buy a lectern just to hold it. <laughs> it's like It's so big. It's like a Bible. I, I, I'm sure a lot is written about that. I read it, of course, but who can remember all that stuff? <laughs> but, uh, I'm sure it's all spelled out. We we all know the Kill Baby Kill Operation Fear came first. And, yes. uh, but who knew Fellini was such a fan? Yeah. So very interesting, uh, very close. Now we go on to The Ghost. Yes, The Ghost, which is the second Freighter film that uh, Steele did, uh, which is interesting because it's almost a direct sequel in a lot of ways. Uh, Freighter revisits his earlier hit with a much cheaper-looking, decidedly toned-down sequel of sorts, but that said, this one has more of an actual story and plot 
things actually happen here, though it's just the equally traditional cuckold husband slash scheming adulterers out for cash come revenge thing that you see several times in her career, and in genres as ostensibly distant as film noir. Uh, the bottom line is it's a better film than Hitchcock, but it looks drab by comparison and exchanges the hoary tropes of gothic fiction for the hoary tropes of noir cinema. Elio Giotto is a much better Hitchcock in all his seediness and pursuit of revenge than the bloodlessly stiff Robert Fleming ever was. White is even more in on it this time around and gets a much meatier part by comparison. There's a knock on the church and everyone gets to play Andy Milligan levels of evil bitchiness throughout. Again, if the ghost had half the flair of Dr. Hitchcock, nobody would even talk about that piece of shit. <laughs> it's much superior outside of that and a more cramped, cheesy-looking uh, use of the same redress set. So that's basically it. He lost money. He did a cheaper film, but it's got the script that Hitchcock should have had. So there you go. Well, well, the, you mentioned uh, Robert Fleming, who was Dr. Hitchcock in the other picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was a British actor who was one of those guys who suddenly found himself in Italy. Yeah, okay. And he's, allegedly he signed on to the picture, and once he found out what it was about, he... I read somewhere he tried to get himself out of the movie. Really? The previous film, yeah. Uh, but he could. So maybe that's why his acting or, or his portrayal is removed or distant or whatever, or maybe just a shitty actor. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, Ilio Jota is uh, much better. It's not the same doctor. Well, here's the other thing in this Freda film, The Ghost Los Petro. It's not the same character. Right, it's a, Which not is right a direct of, sequel. Not a direct sequel. So right away, Ricardo Fredo's fucking everybody like he cared anyway. So it's, even though the, the main character is called Dr. Hitchcock, it's not Dr. Hitchcock from the other movie. Uh, although the housekeeper role is played by the same woman who played the housekeeper in the other picture, but she's also now a medium, and that's uh, Harriet Mendine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steel... Yes, well, she's, she's you know, as you mentioned, she's cook-holding the husband. She's having an affair with the hands of young Peter Baldwin. That wasn't his real name, of course. Um, interesting movie. Uh, again, you know, Freda tends to make his thrillers, his atmospheric horror films, his gothics, almost like dramas. Um, what, can, what can I compare them to? Uh... Over here in America, the the uh, thriller, Boris Kala thrillers. Oh, yeah. The uh, yeah, that's a good that's a good one. I probably they were they were they had some fine actors. I wouldn't go as far to say some Twilight Zones, but some Twilight Zones were kind of had some edge of drama. But things of that ilk, you know, like there's a twist you see it you see the how the story's unfolding and then there's a strange twist and of course the ghost that's a strange twist we don't want to give everything away yeah it's like an echo track presents right there's another one yes there's another one they're very similar the the thriller with which boris Koloff introduced those mm-hmm. episodes and alfred hitchcock presents yeah they're they're very similar feel of course those are american and this is italian but I, I always got to feel that wasn't quite creepy. But we're coming close to probably Steele's, I think, one of her best pictures. But we're getting we're getting there. It's coming up. So next up, she actually does a Fulci film, and we had covered this during our Fulci show. 
which is uh, Imaniaki, the, the Maniacs. Uh, it's, I found it an enjoyable, Fulci portmanteau comedy. She's in a couple of segments. Uh, there's actually three segments in the film. Oh, no, four, sorry. And it, the other people are Lisa Gastoni, who was kind of a big deal in Italy around the time, and Margaret Lee, who popped up in a lot of British and Franco-type films. And believe it or not, uh, Franco and Ciccio, uh, Franco Franchi and Ciccio yeah. Grassi are in this. And Ennio Morricone does the music. So it was not a cheap production. And Steele's in two out of the four segments uh, as uh, Barbara and Brignoli's wife in the segments uh, The Hobby and La Cambiale. You know, it's nothing much. If you've seen Italian sexy comedies, it's less sexy than usual. Uh, well, it's early. It's early. Yeah. Yeah. But it's that idea. It's very much in the same vein. And I got a kick out of it. You know, I'm not a huge Franco Ciccio fan, but, you know, if, if you can get past the uh, Pirino films, you're okay with all this kind of crap. <laughs> you're a specialized audience, uh, and I'm one of those. So, unless you want to say anything about that film, I know we had mentioned it previously. Uh, uh, I love Lisa Gastoni. And, oh, and yeah. She, yeah, and you kind of glossed over her. But she was so hot and wild, wild planet by Margariti. Uh-huh. And, yes. and, 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 and not as hot in this movie, though, which, which is funny. <laughs> it must have been the costume, uh, the tight-fitting sci-fi mm-hmm. but The uh, cat suit. <laughs> the cat suit, yes. When I met, uh, what's your name there, the one that plays Zoe in Doctor Who uh, back in the 60s, who's still cute and fun to this day. She says, yeah, you know, it's always, every guy that comes up to me, they always mention the cat suit, <laughs> which I was one of those people. <laughs> Yeah, cat suits are interesting. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I thought Lisa Gastoni was uh, in several other parts, but in, in, in when her role's in that, where she was supposed to be sex kittenish and hot, it just didn't really come out that way. But yeah, it led to this movie. Yeah, so now here's one that most people associate with uh, Margariti, Antonio Margariti, but originally it was Sergio Corbucci that was working on this. So it, it's kind of like with Freda, you got films where he kind of just stormed off the project after a couple of days and somebody like Mario Bava would take it over. Same thing happened here. Apparently uh, Corbucci, I guess, had left the project for whatever reason, and Margariti took it over. That's my understanding anyway. So... Castle of Blood. Uh, this was written by Edgar Allan Poe and based on Dance Macabre, it says in the credits, which doesn't fucking exist. There is no such story. Uh, it is not written by Edgar Allan Poe. It has nothing to do with Poe, except it was redone, this film, to really no great change in effect as Web of the Spider by Margariti in 1971. The best parts of the film here are the framing story, which is set in an eerily atmospheric tavern where a weary traveler braves the elements to spend the evening listening to Edgar Allan Poe himself, uh, spinning his sickly tales of guilt and woe over drinks by the fire. In Web of the Spider, uh, Poe is more appropriately essayed by none other than Klaus Kinski, as discussed in our Kinski show. Uh, uh yeah. Yes, uh, certainly mine. <laughs> I love that guy. Uh, there is a running bet where the victim spends Samhain Eve or Halloween, if you prefer, in a crumbling old villa. And, of course, he encounters a succession of folks that shouldn't be there. Now, the question is, will he leave to win the bet in the morning? Now, I remembered the remake more than the original, and I pointed out when we discussed this that there's way too much ballroom waltzing and costume romance cheesiness to the midsection of the film. But when things finally start to get revelatory near the end, the picture nearly reclaims the eerie atmospherics of its open and closing framing story. 
I'd have chopped a ton of that smaltzy 50-style women's appeal nonsense and gotten right to the meat of the matter, and it would have served the film better in both versions to retain these overtones of something being very wrong, rather than kind of digging in a foothold and doubling down on the lovey-dovey bits, which really don't work in a film of this sort to the degree and time that they're on screen here. But, that said, Castle of Blood is not exactly Web of the Spider. There's more of the weird old doctor, the omnipresent shadows and cobwebs, and... At least in this version, you get Steele as the love interest, which keeps things more funereal and gothicized than the steely blonde from the remake. Uh, it's still not as strong a picture as people seem to give it credit for being, but it certainly has a lot of moments, great sets, and a lot of atmosphere. So, in a way, even though the films were very much alike, and you do get Kinski in the later film, plus, uh, what's his name there? Uh, who is that Italian guy? He was in um, Franciscus, James Franciscus? I think he was in that. Even though this film doesn't have those, I think it's a better film. You know, having seen them back to back, more or less. So it is good. I wouldn't call it the best of her films, but it's definitely a really good film and uh, a seminal Italian gothic, if you will. So, your take? I think it's the best of her films. Uh, it's a seminal Italian gothic. I agree with you there. Um, it's probably one of Margarita's best pictures best movies as a director uh it's not a perfect movie i mean but there's a lot going for it the tavern scenes are really good yeah you described them well uh who the hell played poe um silvano Silvano tranquilly yeah yes he was really good yes he was really good just minimal makeup they made him actually he's one guy who actually resembled edgar Allan poe (laughs) and and uh the whole thing, you know, the journalist goes there, and then they have a little conversation, and blah, 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 and I believe you, blah, 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 your stories, I'm very interested in you, Mr. Powell. Hey, do you want to spend the night in a haunted house? No such thing exists. So they drop the guy off, which is Georges Rivere, and very interesting. It takes a while for the creepiness to unfold, for it all to get going um i just i just found that the use of her of barbara Steele, as this we're not quite sure what's i mean well if you never i mean obviously at the, you know anybody who's knows listened to the show has seen this film probably yeah. the percentage is very low anybody who's not <laughs> uh but if you're not seeing the film it's a really interesting unfolding let's say of the story that I think actually works pretty well. There are things that derail it, though, when the uh, the physician, let's call it the physician, uh, who appears out of nowhere after a while, and you think he's a flesh and blood character, decides to cut up live snakes, which is like something, oh, I didn't really need to see that. <laughs> um, which is one of the things that got the film a little trimmed, too. Mm-hmm. It's very good. It's a very good Margarita picture. I think she's. It's one of her best films. It's above her top two, I would say. Speaking of Web of the Spider, I really like that. I think Anthony Francioso is freaking way underrated in that. Picture. Tony Francioso, thank you. It wasn't Tony Francioso. It was Tony Francioso that I was thinking of before. Yeah, so, he, he's so under. Yeah, I don't know who the hell you're talking about. Who the hell is Francisco? <laughs> I was going to the top of my head. I'm extemporizing. Okay, okay. Uh, no, no. Anthony Francesa, one of the best things he ever fucking did was Web of the Spider. And, and, and yeah, Michelle Mercier, 
Yes. Was was the blonde that you are not too thrilled with? Well, compared to Barbara Steele. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, you know, it's odd how he, he couldn't drag Barbara back. Because that would have been really interesting. Because from what I know, and what do I know? Well, from what I know is that Margarini felt the he really liked that movie. And he really liked her portrayal, and he liked a lot of elements in the film, but he felt it didn't do well at the box office. This is what I picked up. And Margariti, when he finally had a name for himself, 70, what were we talking about, 70, 71, 72? 72, I think, yeah. He, he, just, he, he had the money, and he finally remade this film with a, you know, a sort of name actor. And it would have been interesting to have Barbara Steele, probably still look very similar, Actually, we know she did. To redo this part, I think that would have been really interesting. I think, yeah, in the remake, also directed by Margariti, uh, it hurt that the actress just probably wasn't up to the role. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, I, I really like this movie a lot, and I think Barbara Steele's terrific in it. Unfortunately, her next Margariti movie is kind of along that Freda thing we were just talking about. Actually, in between this, possibly. I mean, it might have been, again, we're not sure of the exact dates within a year. But she did The Monocle, which we had mentioned during oh, the Eurospy yes, show. Yes, this yes, cheesy yes. French spy comedy with uh, the one that I had seen. I don't think it was The Monocle. I think it was the, the sequel. But yeah. two old fat guys in their 50s going around in, like, bowler hats uh, who, who are ostensibly, you know, supposed to be the James Bond types, but flubbing everything left and right. They're just idiots, basically. They're, they're better off suited to sitting around was, in a cafe yeah. bullshitting. It was released here as a monocle, but it's it was a sequel. It was originally the monocle's big laugh. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that was not it. a very good film, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but she was in it. Uh, so then she moves on to the long hair of death. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I like Margarita a lot. Uh, I have more affection for him than even you seem to. You know, even when he started doing all those bad, you know, Vietnam type or World War II films in the 80s, a mm-hmm. lot of them still I enjoy, even though some of them are pretty bad. But The Long Hair of Death, it, it's an unwatchable historical opus. Unwatchable! That's sort of like Beatrice Sensi, the faulty film, meets mm-hmm. Mark of the Devil by way of Tower of London. I've never <laughs> been able to get through this fucking film, seriously. I've, oh. I've tried about five times. Every time I either fall asleep or I wind up multitasking out of boredom, can't believe it's still running after a long stretch, and shut it off. Terrible. It's a terrible film. Uh, I don't know what to say about it. It's just, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so well, go ahead. What well, 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 the thing? I, <laughs> well, I, I can't redeem this movie, and I don't want to. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the problems with this film is that nearly all the parts are unlikable people. Yes. Um. Yeah. You have a witch who was burned at the stake. Yep. And her husband at the time, a count, was responsible for this. Okay, okay, we're going along with this. Then years later, the descendant is a really evil dude, played by Giorgio Artisan, who's really cool in Euro spy movies, and we yes. discussed that. Um, but he he's like a twisted fuck. So he's like this rich count who's kind of scurvy and skeevy. And then there's the woman who looks like Barbara Steele and it can be a uh, well she's got the same last name right yeah yeah um, whatever it was Karnstein Karnstein yeah the, the, the old Carmilla thing <laughs> um, it was just that 
Yeah, it's a tough picture because you don't like the female roles. You don't like the male roles. There's nobody to root for in the film. Everybody's flitting around bad costumes like a third-rate Shakespeare play. Well, yeah, well, you know, that's neither here nor there. Let's grab something off the rack. But I think think here that uh, I think what I'm trying to get to is that you have decent actors, and but you have it was all in the writing. I think here you had you had this, these parts where the heroines are unlikable, the heroine roles are unlikable, the male leads a scumbag and a fuck, <laughs> and even and so you're going to sit through 80 minutes of this because why? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the only thing that could have made this worse was if Ricardo Freire had directed it. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, So from there, she goes to a film that I really, really love. It's actually one of my favorite Italian gothics, believe it or not. Uh, Terror Creatures from the Grave, directed by who? Massimo Pupolo. Uh, Yeah, big name there. But claims to be from an Edgar Allan Poe story, but just like with Castle of Blood, in no way does it have anything to do with him. Hell, it's about plague victims coming to life. Yeah, big Poe topic there. An attorney is summoned out to a villa to do some estate and testamentary work by the owner, who's been dead for a year. Uh, he's met by the widowed second wife, who is Steele, and her crazy blonde stepdaughter, who really has a thing for our late father's sideline as a spiritualist and medium. He spends most of the film wandering around listening to the daughter's bullshit, but still manages to get a shagging with the horny widow along the way. There's a bunch of murders, or are they suicides? A doofy cop, Luciano Pagazzi as the butler, zombies, and a whole lot of victims getting struck with the Black Plague. Turns out it's a supernatural revenge plot from beyond the grave. Surprise, surprise, steals a cheating spouse once again. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in the end, everyone's saved by a Deus Ex Machina rainstorm. Obviously quite low budget, but still really creepy and atmospheric, which is why I like it so much. And it's probably my all-time favorite film of those discussed tonight, taken on the whole. Though in terms of steel films, she doesn't have that huge of a part considering it's more of, a, I guess, a strong supporting role at best. Your take? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. This thing was still playing on, on Times Square. I would say some point in the early to mid seventies. Old black and white movie from like sixty five, sixty six. Go figure, folks. Um, probably because it was creepy. And you know, we're not talking about bloodletting or anything. No. Like that. It's just one of those pictures that you could probably find on Alpha Video, five dollar. Uh, I think it's got recently re-released on DVD or Blu-ray from some company that's newish. Really? Let me know. Uh, yeah. I have that Alpha one, yeah. No, no, it's, it recently came out. It's a double bill. With oh, I know. It was uh, one of those people like Severn or something. They put out one of the films they already put out before, Castle of Blood, and they threw in a couple of other Steel films on the back end. And didn't didn't advertise. They weren't really like, okay, these films are there. They were just kind of like, oh, here's an extra. And I think that was one of them. It could be. It could be. I'm not for sure, but you could be right. So, yeah, it's creepy. It's it's interesting. Uh, um, this director, it's a story here. Um, he's the same guy who did Bloody Pit of Horror. You know that famous movie with uh, Mickey Hargitay? Mickey Hargitay. I love that film. Ah, my perfect body. <laughs> Embrace the lover of death. Great film if you have not Wait. seen it, people. Yes, which, which, yes, of course you would like that. 
It is which... awesome. It, it actually, those of you who know the Italian fumettis, which, uh, you know, if you grew up in a certain era, my father used to bring home ones from Mexico, which are basically picture books. You know, like, they even have them for Coffin Joe. It was in one of the Coffin Joe box sets that they get from film sets. Or sometimes they just take a bunch of stills, and they put women in, you know, provocative clothing, getting by some hooded or masked or skeletonized or whatever the hell kind of evildoer. This is a fumetti come to life, kind of like, there's a couple films like that, Satanic and Diabolic and Killing and Killing in Istanbul, things like that. And that's what that film is. So it's really a must-watch, especially with Mickey Hargitay crazily overacting this really kind of homoerotic character <laughs> going around torturing everybody that comes to his place uh, because he is haunted by the fact that he may also have feelings for this woman who he wants to know. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So go ahead. Don't we always do that? <laughs> Where's that costume? Um, <laughs> wow, you derailed my thought there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Crimson Executioner will do that to you. Uh. Ralph Zucker. Ralph Zucker was uh, was an American producer. He was like a child actor. Who knew? Who cared? Um, <laughs> Ralph Zucker uh, decided to go to Italy and produce some movies and you know, this is that time period where they wanted to get more distribution to the U.S. and Great Britain, more English-speaking countries. And, you know, Massimo Pupolo, you know, names like that. They figured if people's name was like Joe Smith, you know, Dan Big Nose, you know, like <laughs> English-sized names, even for the actors. Yep. They changed everything. So they Massimo Pupolo... The name Ralph Zucker was attributed to this picture for a long time. The same thing with Bloody Pit of Horror, which we just talked about. So it was really interesting. Uh, so, yeah, it's the same guy who did Bloody Pit of Horror. It's a very creepy movie, like I said. I, I agree with you. I like this film quite a lot myself. And five years on, Pupilo recalls that she was difficult. <laughs> um, so this is five years on from starting on from Balba. And people have said her, her her attitude on this, on set was really disgusting in quotes. So maybe she was getting into the role. I don't know because I I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to be like an anti Barbara Steele guy because we're actually saluting her with this. Oh, we show, love her. But, yeah. but, but we love her filmic work. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Somebody passed out drunk at ten in the morning. Yeah, it's a little more questionable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nightmare Castle is next. I so, uh, Nightmare Castle with another who? Mario Caino. Uh, wait, why is he remaking The Ghost? Yes, it's another cheating couple film. Seems to be her forte. Only this time it's flip-flopped. Instead of the Dr. Hitchcock copycat discovering the cuckold and getting his revenge at the end of the film, here he catches steal with the gardener in the greenhouse, almost in the opening credits, and walls them up Casco Amontillado style. Uh, still returns as the second wife. But this time she's the ingenue, while poorly aged makeup bedecked Helga Linné, who conveniently gets the youth and beauty makeover for much of the film, takes the Harriet White Medden role. Really, when she's supposed to be the old servant, it's like, what the hell is that thing? Because it looks like a monster. The mask is so bad, the, the way they did her makeup. Paul Muller of Franco Film fame, be sure to check out our three-part Franco coverage in the archives, is Hitchcock, or whatever his renaming left him as here. And while not as sleazy as Elio Giotta, it's still far more emotive and nuanced than either him or Robert Fleming 
get over it. Uh, he's simply a different caliber of actor, as you know, Franco fans would know, or even fans of Jerry Cotton. The sets are well dressed and large in scale, but the film feels cheaper and grottier than Hitchcock, and not as lush, if overcrowded and cramped, as The Ghost either. In the end, despite events repeating themselves between the new wife and now the doctor who looks after her, complete with Muller turning steel against the poor guy, the ghosts get their revenge in the living, which takes the Hitchcock slash ghost scenario and pulls it more into Castle of Blood or even Terror Creatures territory with all this supernaturalism. In some ways, this film is just as good as The Ghost, but despite bearing a stronger cast and more sex appeal, because Steele and even the Stiffly Nail look pretty damn good here, and there's several at least partial undressing sequences, which was surprising. It doesn't feel quite as accomplished. It's certainly not half so atmospheric. The sets and lighting leave it feeling like it was filmed at somebody's neighborhood home rather than a decaying old castle or sumptuous villa. Even so, the scenes with the dark-haired steel really make the picture and almost save it from being a long, rather daylight-bedecked midsection. So. Well, I, I think for, for this being 1966, when this was made, I think you're, you're it's at the cusp of that period now where... The, the, they're trying to push an envelope that heretofore they haven't really been doing much. So with the, the you know, sex appeal, the sexuality, two years previous, if they had made Castle of Blood in 66, it would have been really interesting, 67, 68. You know, but, but it was made in 64. But now with Nightmare Castle, it's the same kind of thematic carousel. You know, we have this template. And, and it, it's a very strange template that these guys seem to be using, is particularly with her, because she's playing, you know, this dual, almost dual role thing again. The, you know, the husband, the cuckolding, you know, the the vengeance, and she's cheating on him with uh, Rick Battaglia. You know, with a lot of, uh, uh, I guess well, what we call muscle. Sort, muscle man movies, sort yeah. of sandal films. You know, um, he was a big guy. He was a big guy, looked really good, dark, dark hair, dark complexion. So, very interesting. Uh, yeah, it's a shame Helga Linné is sort of wasted in this as the agent servant. But yeah, if you want to see her in her best, there you get your choice. You can either go to the Nashi, uh, you can check out our Nashi archives uh, uh, show where we talk about horror rise from the tomb, mm. or you could check out uh, Black Candles, the Laura's film. Both of them mm. oh. show her off to our best. <laughs> Literally. Okay. <laughs> so it's a, it's a shame that Helga Lene, who's in this, and one of her earlier parts is uh, earlier roles, is hidden under lots of makeup like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, pushing us toward the she beast. Actually, in between, I'm not sure again which what was what in what year. I had an angel for Satan next. Uh, oh, I forgot about that. So I basically, sorry about that. Go ahead. A fisherman hole in an old statue said to be cursed. As people related to the discovery or in contact with the statue begin to die off, the village starts getting antsy and uppity, especially because the statue looks sort of like Steel, who just showed up out of the blue. But it's really just some nonsense about a jealous old lady in the end. A nice old Italian villa, a butler who's a dead ringer for Tony Bennett, plenty of small island village atmosphere right down to the local drunks who can't stand them outsiders messing with the pretty local girls, a seedy scheming count, and a red-headed knockout of a love interest, a nice Italian girl who goes by the stage name of Ursula Davis, also of the Christopher Lee, Crypt of the Vampire, King of Kong Island, and the Jello Reflections in Black, and perhaps best of all, still turns hoary and sadistic, playing weird sex games with just about everyone in the house and surrounding town, male or female, and ruining lives along the way. Not only was this film seriously over-sexed for the time, 
but it's a truly Sodian film. Surprisingly so for its era, with plenty of atmosphere and sure to keep you gripped throughout. I actually think that, you know, maybe Terror Creatures from the Grave, but this is one of the, her, my favorite of her films when it comes down to it, at least in terms of her role as a pro or antagonist. So It's very interesting. It's just like one of the hardest to find yes. gothic horror films, gothic films, period, for years and years and years. Alan Upchurch, who was a big Barbara Steele fan and a big Bava fanatic, the late Alan Upchurch, had gotten a copy of this from somebody years ago uh, before a better print was found. And he lent it to a, a, a collector who I knew. This is one of the few times in my life I actually made a mistake. The collector gave me a copy and traded for lots of movies. So I have Angel for, I said, oh my God, you have Angel for Satan. So he gave it to me. I lent my copy to, are you ready? Yeah. Tom Weiser. Oh. You know is that how it got to Kim's video? <laughs> it got everywhere. Out there. It was in Video Search in Miami, probably, yeah. Yes, everybody company. was very upset with me. Yeah. Um, but I did not know. I was like, hey, you can't give this to anybody. But, of course, you can't trust Thomas Weiser. Video Search in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those of us who were around to know the whole great market thing, yeah, that name's kind of infamous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a <laughs> great lot of reasons of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Uh, and the overpricing for the shitty prints. Uh, let's not talk about Figure Search in Miami. <laughs> that, that would be a fascinating show, though. To, to, I would talk like about the great market companies, video screams, and all. <laughs> Blood Times, a shitty company, though. <laughs> Luminous. Uh, yeah, okay, go ahead. Midnight Video. Midnight Video is actually pretty good, but overpriced. Hey, Blood Times wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, one of the few gray market companies I never was involved with. <laughs> I don't know why. Enough, I had tons of stuff. Maybe you didn't advertise in Video Watchdog. I don't know. <laughs> I, I advertised everywhere else. Really? Oh, that's why, huh? There you go. Yeah, there you go. And Video Ooze, that was my other one. <laughs> I wrote for them. Really? They got a couple of those issues still. The Nashi issue for one, for sure. Oh, and the, uh, the one with... Um, What's your name? Christina Lindbergh. I have both of those issues for sure on my shelf. Oh, yeah. Uh, you should. I, I'm, I've got something in one of those, I think. All right, now we go on to the She-Beast. So uh, next up was the She-Beast. It was one of a trio of films directed by the difficult young UK filmmaker Michael Reeves before his death. I used to like this one a lot more as a teen, but having rewatched it again lately, I was struck by all the terrible comedy with the, the peeping old Russian landlord. His name is actually Old Groper, quote-unquote, and his drunken trucker buddy and the doddering professor and the terrible old man makeup once again. Steele is looking a bit old and drawn here for the first time in her cinematic career. The dark beauty of her earlier gothics is starting to morph into something more skeletal and funereal, if not kind of sleazy. The honeymoon sequence with the crappy old bed is kind of painful and forced, and the witch's makeup is terrible, particularly with all the long-drawn-out quote-unquote comedy of the bumbling communist officials and villagers throughout. Also, the print looks kind of washed out, even with this recent restoration from, I don't know, I think it was Dark Sky? So, uh, Dark Sky, yeah. not, not a high point of anyone's career, be it Reeves, Steele, or anyone else involved. Yeah, this, this movie never looked good. Uh, even when it was on television airings, uh, it looked kind of I don't know, if they try to amp up the color, it just looked washed out, so I can mm -hmm. imagine, you know, um, it's got some interesting people in here, though, you got Ian Ogilvy, uh, Mel Wells, uh, Lucretia Love, 
Remember Donald Sutherland's in this? So, was he in this one? I wasn't sure. I know he's yeah, in a couple of Italian gothics, but... This is the one where he's the old lady. I thought that was uh, Crypt of uh, the Living Dead. The one no, no, no. It's a she-beast. Okay. It has, it's a very quick walk-on. It's not a great movie. It's actually... It's a misfire, but I see what you mean. You know, it's... Uh, I have to think that this was a movie where a lot of people lost interest in it while they were making it. Yeah, definitely. And hence, you know, allegedly Barbara Steele is, has only worked a few days if that in the movie, although she's in quite a bit of it, which I can't understand. If she says she worked one to two days, how is she in all this movie? Yeah. Um, so, it's a mess. It's, but it's worth a look historically. Yeah. And speaking of messes, next up she does The Crimson Cult, a confused, misleadingly cast Tygon picture that only tangentially, if not downright sideways, relates to Lovecraft's dreams in the witch house. Everyone you came to see, uh, because you know, you've got Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, Barbara Steele, Michael Gow, Virginia Weatherall, everyone you came to see in it is, is for about five minutes tops, and never are all of them in the same damn scene or room together. Michael Gow's a mute Steele's only an occasional presence in drug dreams. Karloff is a friendly professor. And it won't surprise anyone to hear that Lee is a grumpy baddie, a little too deep into occultism, as the man himself apparently was, hence his push to get Dennis Wheatley on screen twice for Hammer in his role for Aaron's in the Skull. Weatherill's just there to get naked. It looks nice, but it's surprisingly dull, and you walked away feeling ripped off. And that's kind of the thing I got out of it every time I've seen it. How about you? I love this movie. Really? <laughs> Okay, I'm like a super fan. <laughs> I, I love it. I'm a super fan, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I, I saw this in the theater. Shh. <sighs> it was on a double bill with the Count Yorger Vampire. So we're talking it wasn't 19. even born yet. <laughs> so, 1970. Got to rub it in every once in a while. 82? No, not that late. <laughs> so, anyway... So, uh, yeah, and, and this actually, it was a good creepy double bill, you know, Count Yorga's bad enough. <laughs> I always like this movie, it's it's weird, and what is Barbara painted green in this, right? Yes, yes. Yes, she's painted green, and she's wearing some kind of... <laughs> Ridiculously horn-rimmed uh, headdress like she's... Right, with an early, early version of a Victoria's Secret push-up. <laughs> yes! Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's but there's something work, so. there's in, in in the sequences where uh, who's our hero here? Uh, Mark Eden, where Mark Eden is hypnotized or under the spell, and he's going through these weird kind of quasi psychedelic yes things. I kind of I kind of like that. I thought it was strange enough. Yeah, Christopher Lee's walking through it. Boris Koloff is barely walking through it. He's actually in a wheelchair. Yeah. Virginia Weatherwell, well, she kind of makes the movie fun for a moment. <laughs> but, um, I always I always like this. I had, I, even though it's Tygon, it has enough creepy stuff going for it. I think one of the problems, okay, if there's a problem with this movie, it was shot too straight, too, um, the cinematography actually is too good for it. And if you it know what it reminds me of? Pete Walker's last film. What the hell was that? Yeah. With uh, 
all the old horror stores and Vincent Price is actually in that one. On oh, the, the House of Long Shadows. Okay. Yeah, same idea. Not as campy, but same kind of failed atmosphere. Like, okay, let's throw everybody together, but we can't get them all on set, and let's just fudge it <laughs> and hope it works. Well, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. you know, if, if you want to see Barbara Steele and Greenface as Lavinia, 300-year-old uh, witch. Yep. Uh, satanic thing, sacrificing young virgins, this is the movie. <laughs> Uh, so next up, she starts doing some strange stuff. She did uh, an episode of The Night Gallery, which was uh, Rod Serling's TV series after uh, Twilight Zone, which I actually prefer to The Twilight Zone, to be honest with you. It was more of a horror thing. She was in the episode The Sins of the Fathers. Cage Heat, which was a uh, Jonathan Demme film, was one of those first, women in prison jobs. Yeah. I think she was the warden in this one. Yeah, yeah, she was the witch warden with more than a professional interest in her charges, I wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold on a second. With Cage Heat, you know, with, with um, for Coleman, uh, Coleman, Corman, sorry, folks. <laughs> uh, Tak Fujimoto was a cinematographer. And, you know, uh, nobody else, Cheryl Rainbow Smith, who everybody yes. remembers from You Know What, uh, was in this. Uh, but, yeah, Barbara Steele was like she come out of the blue because this is like 1974 I think 74 and it's like wow she's playing this real lesbian quasi lesbian sorry quasi lesbian <laughs> evil evil woman oh yeah nasty and this is and this is so being a 74 it's almost like the early precursor to the women in prison cycle you know? yes mm-hmm. sorry and, um, I do so next up, she gets involved in a better film, as far as I'm concerned, uh, which was Shivers uh, mm-hmm. with David Cronenberg. A weird yuppie gentrification apartment complex gets on the wrong side of a scientific experiment to unleash the beast in man, Wilhelm Reich style. That's right. It's all about orgies in Oregon, courtesy of some gross little metaphor for crabs and some other social diseases. Lynn Lowry, still in her super hot hippie chick days, fresh off films like I Drink Your Blood and Score before she put on all the weight. And aging but still attractive Barbara Steele, in Live and Matters as a horny nurse and a jet-setter friend of the ostensible lead, who winds up having the same-sex hots for her once again. Lest you think it's all the setup for some softcore porn film, Cronenberg makes sure to inject his usual body horror queasiness. And keep in mind, some of the victims who tackle the uninfected to spread their disease include old folks, same and bisexual swingers, a brief scene hinting heavily at incest, and even a kid in a hallway attack scene. It's a horror film, so don't get too weird with this, but the implications are kind of universal. I was like, yeah. Queasy and more like a zombie film than a black comic statement about 70s me-generation swinging culture, although it's clearly a bit of both. Uh, it's an interesting film for sure. I do like it, but it's yeah, it's got its queasy moments. Let's put it that way. There's not there's, there's nothing I can add to that. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so uh, next up, she goes to Piranha, uh, which is actually three years later, by the way, uh, directed by Joe Dante, the guy from Gremlins. That's right. Uh, which means that it falls under that most annoying of subgenres, a <laughs> horror comedy. At least could it's I, better than fucking could Gremlins. Could I interfere for a moment? Can you imagine if it was Piranha was directed by Joe D'Amato? That would be awesome. That would be interesting. That would have been a good film. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Then we'd love it. Uh, But anyway, at least it's better than fucking Gremlins horror comedy. Whenever you say horror comedy, unless you're talking about evil laugh, if you say horror comedy, I'm like, oh, get the fuck out of here. You don't Uh, like Gremlins? No. No. Don't feed them after midnight. Get out of here. How can you not like Gremlins? 
It's such a Disney movie. It's like E.T. for, like, you know, the horror crowd. Come on, <laughs> you gotta like Gremlins. Yeah. I mean, as a kid's film, it's like, okay, whatever. But that's like, oh, yes, here's a great, like, you know, culty adult film from the 80s. Please. It'd be like the last time All I right. Go back to Piranha. So, it's no howling. like either, right? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Uh, it, like I said, it's better than Gremlins. It's no howling, though. I mean, I have to give the guy credit for at least one good movie in his career, uh, which was howling. Uh, the usual Jaws knockoff and government cover-ups. I liked this film a lot better when I was a kid. Uh, it's not awful, uh, but it doesn't hold up so well these days. And you have people in it like uh, Heather Menzies, who wound up in a lot of these slasher-type films. Brad Dillman, Kevin McCarthy, the body snatchers guy himself, who drank who on this set between him and Steele, and Keenan Wynn, Hell Satan. Yes, do you remember that Keenan Wynn was a Satanist? Uh, and Barbara Steele, and uh, Eric Braden, and Corman Regular is like Dick Miller, here's another one, drinker, and Paul Bartel. And believe it or not, who's uh, did the music for this? Pino DiNaggio. What? Uh, so anyway, what's your take on this one? Wow. Uh, when was Keenan Wynn a Satanist? He was. In what? Back in the 60s and 70s. Oh, you, you remember? mean real life? Yeah, in real life. How did I not know this? Yeah, not uh, the other fellow, not his brother, the one that was on uh, Bill Goldberg, how he was in. But yeah, Keenan Wynn, yeah. Really? Sammy Davis Jr. flirted with it. <laughs> Jay Mansfield flirted with oh, it. Oh, yeah, we know Sammy. Sammy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. After, but yeah, after Keenan Wynn. Keenan Wynn was serious he, about it. After he gave up Judaism, right? Yeah. Eddie Albert. Uh, I mean, he got some crazy people that were involved. Like, okay. Oh, we gotta have a talk about this. this is <laughs> Keenan Wynn of all people. Wow. Exactly. I'm like Keenan Wynn. All right. From the Great Race. Wow. <laughs> Grumpy old okay. Keenan Wynn. Who had a really unusual delivery? Did you ever notice that all ah. years from the 40s, 50s until he passed away? He had an unusual delivery. He was always barking out his lines. Interesting. He reminded me of uh, that guy, uh, Robert Simon, that was uh, the thing I always remember from was the Amazing Spider-Man series from the 70s, and he was Jameson on that one. Mm. <laughs> Same kind of persona. Or uh, the guy that I was just watching recently, the guy from the Sweeney, John Thaw. On your bike, mate. You're nicked. <laughs> or or, or did that reminds me of from... Uh... Life on Mars, the original, the original British one. Who the hell was the guy that played the, the superintendent? Oh, yeah, he used to bark out of his lines. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so you asked me. So yes. you know, this has got an interesting cast. You got Bradford Dillman, you know, perennial television hero guy, and uh, who couldn't really transfer well to movies. Uh, uh, I think Bradford was also in Chosen. Survivors and other things in Batilk. Yes. Uh, he had a particular, you know, to, you know mentioned Keenan Wayne. He also had a particular delivery. Bradford Dillon was very stringent. He was very tight. Uh, Heather Menzies, I, I briefly had the hots for her. I, I, you know, I don't know why. I, I can see remember. that, I guess. She's not my type, but I can see the why. She's not well, a girl. At least I didn't say it was Dick Miller. <laughs> Then I'd be worried about you. <laughs> but Dick Miller's cool. You know, Dick Miller is like the coolness of cool. Isn't this Paul Bartel? Uh, Barry Brown, who, who briefly had a career. Richard Deacon is in this, people. You know, the name Richard Deacon brings a bell. He was in all those TV shows back in the 60s and 70s. Yep. Um, is it any good? Well, what was that? Uh, that's my phone ringing, and I have uh, D 
Do you remember the wrestler uh, Santino Morella? No. Okay, yeah. So I've, I've got his uh, operatic uh, ringtone. <laughs> and I keep it because it disturbs people. Everybody turns around and looks when the phone rings. <laughs> like now. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, and Barbara Steele's the evil person. Actually, she's the one that, that ties up the movie because uh, the movie ends pretty much for her character, you know, giving a TV interview saying, everything's okay now. Meanwhile, we find out there's piranhas elsewhere. Uh, oh, and Eric Braden, the soap star, is in this, too, as a double. Yes, he is. Another, another, it's interesting. I love it. <laughs> Joe Dante also loves casting familiar faces and, like, you know, beloved TV people in movies and stuff. So, you know, I, I give him credit for that. Give him some work. Um, I, well, it's funny. I liked it a lot more when I was younger. Something yeah. you said about about something, and as I as I'm a little older now, I I don't shut up. I don't oh, like it. As, <laughs> I don't like it as much, and I I think am I ruined by all the gore that came after this, or the shock value of what better effects, modern effects, or shock cutting, quick cutting can do? I don't know. Better actors. <laughs> Uh, it's for, for its time it's fun now if yeah. I'm going to compare it to something else similar of that time period like Humanoids from the Deep which is cheap. or even Barracuda or Tentacles or which, yeah, you know. which is creepy and still is creepy there's something about this that just comes across as eh, goofy mm. yeah. Yeah. like I said so, it's a comedy so it's like yeah black sort of so uh next up she does the silent scream which is her first and only slasher film directed by denny harris who the fuck uh, anyway some doofy broad with outdated tony tenniel hair and cuban heel disco boots goes looking for a place to shack up on what appears to be the northern california coast so she picks a private home come boarding house run by a real vernon pot style geek for those who've seen twisted brain aka horror high also occupied by an obnoxious rich guy who's supposed to serve as comic relief, a gregarious fat girl. There's a great line where the next guy says, I don't know, she's a big girl. I'm sure she can take care of herself. Yeah, she's kind of big. Uh, and the seven-foot-tall jock-type love interest. These four socialize, get loaded, and frolic, much to the audience's annoyance, before getting bumped off, much to our collective relief, by a proverbial mad woman in the attic, a mute Barbara Steele. There's a predictable twist involving some intercharacter relationships. Things get weirdly edible, and the film turns into a cross between the unseen, minus the fat adult and baby diapers, and the shining, minus any hint of creepiness or anyone on the caliber of Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's sort of typical for a slasher, but surprisingly dull and bloodless, even by those standards, still has nothing to do. Uh, and I also said to Cass, Cameron Mitchell's there. Who outdrank who in the set? Avery Schreiber, the Cheetos guy, also from Scavenger Hunt. Jack Stryker, presumably no relation to Jeff. <laughs> and Yvonne DeCarlo, the washed-up, significantly larger Lily Monster. I never liked this movie. And, yeah. and, uh, no fault of steel. No condemnation of any of the actors. I mean, sometimes we kid around here, folks. You know, we Everybody's got to eat. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and, and not really. Some of these people who done these kind of movies, they really did a level work and sometimes in these kind of movies it did phenomenal work 
I've Seriously. seen worse acting than people we knock on the show in current day TV, much less cinema. So, yeah, 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 yeah. like you said, take that to the bank. We we knock people, but it's all kind of tongue in cheek. You know, it's, we, yeah, we it's tongue in cheek. It's tongue in cheek. We respect so, the art. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And sometimes in these kind of films, you can see some phenomenal fucking acting. I see. Yeah. I kid you not. I really do. That's true. Steve Rails back in Life Force. Man, wow. Oh, you're right. That was an interesting one. <laughs> a little over the top, <laughs> but but interesting. <laughs> but anyway, no, seriously. But Tilda May was great in that film. Oh, that's not a story. But seriously, though, this was a movie I saw. I think I rented it out on VHS back in the day, and I just didn't like it. I was still laughing at Steve Rills back. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> if those of you who have not seen Life Force, yeah, you should. Uh, check out our Toby Hooper show, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, like the Toby Hooper show. Yes, yes. Um, uh, you threw me again. I, re- I rented this out on VHS back in the day, and I wanted it to be better, and it wasn't really. And uh, Not that I wanted a more lurid film, a scarier movie, or better actor or better director movie it's just it was there and it's indicative yeah. of the, a lot of the movies that were made at this time period that are like this yeah it's true, true. It's, it was it's quiet not, right mm-hmm. where it should have been scary or bloody it was quiet and tame mm-hmm. and where it should have been you know giving you a little bit more character maybe to carry you through it just didn't like most slashers uh, so anyway, the last thing that I have for her that really is anything, although she did apparently wind up producing or executive producing some episodes of Queer Eye that nobody really has any uh, backup for. Like, what episodes did she do? When was she doing this? Who the hell knows? But they claim it, so I'll take it as gospel. Only Carson Kressley and company know. Uh, <laughs> but 1991... Uh, she gets involved with... She had done a couple things like The Winds of War and Warner Oh, she won, she won an Emmy for that. Yeah, she was involved with co-production on those with Dan Curtis back in the the early 80s, late 70s. So, hanging around with Dan, I guess he called her in when he decided to reboot Dark Shadows, which was, uh, we had intended to talk about that with a fella I knew, but then he kind of dropped both the face of the earth and whatever. And that's kind of a, a book in itself, just talking about that show. I used to be a big fan of it. Got that big coffin set. But, you know, it was in 1966, I believe, to 71 or so. That's soap right. opera. Yeah. Which really kind of broke all the boundaries and brought horror in for a while, which is fascinating. It was actually a show based on gothic horror, period. Uh, and you got werewolves and mummies and all kinds of crap going on in there. Uh, Lovecraftian deities and vampires and who knows what the hell ghosts. So he decided to reboot this thing in 1991 because he saw there was still interest for it. Uh, there were certainly conventions going around. I've been to one of those. It was a short but likable revival of the 60s gothic soap opera, enlivened mostly in this time by Lizette Anthony's sexy take on Angelique Dupre. Uh, the rest of it was kind of like, eh, you know, Ben Cross was a little too safe and yuppified. Some of the leads and parts, there was a guy that was playing uh, the Willie Loomis part that just didn't fucking work. He had like bad teeth and only looked like a you know redneck uh, backwoods, whatever the hell. Like a, almost like a exploitation film, Deliverance or something. Like, mm-hmm. nah, this guy doesn't fucking work. But people thought, oh yeah, he was so great. No, he was horrible. I'm sorry. But it did have its moments. And like I said, mostly based on her kind of sexed up take on Angelique. But 
surprisingly, Steele had a fairly big part in this as uh, Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Julie Hoffman. And also in the brief flashback sequence, because it was a long flashback sequence in the, the original series, as uh, Countess Natalie Dupre, the um, mother of Josette, who was one of the heroines, the head vampire there, the lead of the series, if you will, was chasing after. So she was in you know, a couple episodes that way. That's really it on that. From there, I don't know what the hell, if anything, she did. Kind of, her career seems to have stopped around 1991 or so. Well, well I really, uh, speaking about dark shows, I watched that because I was really interested when they revived that. And I thought she was not a bad choice. No, she wasn't. Uh, uh, I thought, as, as Julia Hoffman, I thought she was actually a really good choice. Who would have thought? I, I think the problem was maybe not with Ben Cross as an actor, but with Ben Cross chosen to play Barnabas Collins. But who do you get to play Barnabas Collins? That's a tough one too. And I my research for the show because I've forgotten over time said that while it was running, we invade we invaded some country called Iraq, and so uh, is that why it was so short? Yeah, apparently. Yeah, apparently the Iraq invasion. Everybody started watching the news. And no, but and the the numbers just plummeted. Yeah. So apparently the Iraq invasion was kind of the kill for Dark Shadows revival. What a casualty. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it popped up again in a couple of years. It is what it is, you know. I I just really wouldn't be surprised if Dark Shadows shows up again. But yeah, I thought she was quite good as as Julia Hoffman in that. The only yeah. thing I thought about against that is that number one, Dan Curtis is dead. And number two, with all those vampire, like, Twihard stuff that went on in the last couple of years, especially with the CW having all these, like, oh, the vampire diaries and this vampire and that vampire and right, all right, those right, right. charms, it, if it was going to pop up, I figured it would have popped up then. But you never know. You know, they're always a like remix. Yeah, the last thing of note I have here is in this really weird David Lynch-type movie directed by Ryan Gosling, Lost River. Okay. She, she had a feature part. From 2016. Uh, that was a movie with the Doctor Who I couldn't stand and hated with a passion, Matt Smith. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that on the Doctor Who show, I think. Yeah, yeah. Matt Smith was in this movie as some kind of weird character. And, you know, Ryan Gosling, who works for Nicholas Wren, whatever his name is. Nicholas yeah, Wren, Wren, Nicholas Winding Rain. That's it, thank uh, you. Uh, yeah, he made, he made his own very strange movie, which I've seen portions of on Amazon, then I couldn't get past 15 minutes of it. So I never got up to Barbara Steele, but that's the last thing I have of note. So uh, that's basically it. Don't get the wrong impression. We certainly love uh, the films of Barbara Steele, especially the gothic films and the darker films of their earlier days. And, you know, we both enjoyed her on Dark Shadows as well. But, you know, as you can tell, she actually had a reputation of being difficult and worked with some people who were known for being difficult. I mean, Freda was certainly known for that. Uh, my favorite story that I'm sure I've mentioned before was where he had a difficult actress at one point who was chained to a wall. And he's like, okay, everybody go to coffee break. And left her there the entire time screaming. Like, somebody let me down off the freaking wall. And they all went away for, you know, whatever it was, half an hour to have lunch. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, then, of course, uh, Michael Reeves, who was known for being uh, difficult during his very brief career. The guy did the uh, Conqueror Worm and things like that, and the Saucers, and uh, I forget what else. Uh, only did a couple of films. So you never know. I mean, this stuff is all kind of to the vagaries of history and who's telling it. But with you having met her a couple of times and my experience of her, I was like, yeah, well, you know, there may be some truth to some of these stories. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Uh, so anyway, uh, salute to you anyway, Barbara Steele. Uh, we definitely love your filmic uh, works that you left us. And, and your icy uh, cold stare. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Uh, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little German chat on uh, Barbara Steele and her icy eyes of death. Next time, we will be talking the weird world of amicus films. In the wake of the surprising runaway success of the Hammer Horrors, any number of budget-conscious producers suddenly saw gold in them in our hills, ranging as far distant as Roger Corman's California production house with the much-loaded Hammer-derived post cycle, and as close to home as Kevin Francis's short-lived Tyburn, Tony Tenser's far more credible Tygon, and a Shepard and Studios-based yet American-founded company with an obsession for EC Comics in the portmanteau format, namely Amicus Films. Featuring a plethora of both stateside and UK luminaries of the silver screen, past and present, Rosenberg and Sabotsky's English cash cow dropped many a Saturday afternoon syndicated chiller on television audiences, and the filmgoers whose airings preceded such, featuring trilogies, quartets, and quadrilogies of short film shutters for the monster kids of the 60s and 70s. But equally, if not far more interesting, were their non-anthologized efforts, which range from a pair of oddly juvenile, even abysmal Doctor Who opuses based on previously aired and far more pulp-based serials, and two of the most mock science fiction films of their era, The Terranauts and They Came From Beyond Space, to a trilogy of quirky Burroughs Pellucidor adaptations. But most importantly, a handful of fascinating horror films, The Skull, The Deadly Bees, The Cushingly Misfire Eye Monster, and Now the Screaming Starts, and the delightful Werewolf Break Sporting Blaxploitation crossover, The Beast Must Die. Who knows, we may even touch on Sabotsky's post-amicus efforts, the Uncanny oh. Monster Club as well. <laughs> so. Unlikely. <laughs> this is already turning into a five-hour show. No, so we're going to try to breeze through that one. <laughs> so prepare to scream and scream again as we talk one of the strongest yet strangely flawed pretenders to the Hammerian horror throne, the fascinating bizarre Amicus Films in the Shadow of Giants, the weird world of Amicus Films. So uh, if you'd like to join us here, uh, contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician, mm-hmm. like join us on air. Drop us a line on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at weirdscenes1. Weirdscenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the Big Five Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, if there's any filmmakers out there, actors or actresses, directors, of note, please know Bill Zebub. I already interviewed you. Uh, As did I. No, who is interested in sharing your thoughts or your stories, uh, just contact us, and uh, we'll see where this might go. We talk more than about genre film, but that seems to be our forte here. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this show, Barbara Steele. And I was kidding, yeah. We're we're really looking forward (laughs) to the amicus thing. Um, Not every amicus film was good, of course, so we're going to try to hit the highlights in that one. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for listening.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards light. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, a 
Thomas Paul, and myself, discuss the beloved, the Canadian, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. The pressure to innovate is constant. It can be crippling or it can be a catalyst for your best thinking and your best work. Every year, Harvard Business School Executive Education helps executives like you understand the forces that drive change and find new approaches to compete and win on innovation. Change course. Get ahead. Go. Start by going to hbs.me go. That's hbs.me go.